Heavenly Father, as we spend some time again this evening uh, thinking about uh, the plan of salvation and the application of it uh, in our lives, that from before the foundation of the world you set your affection upon us and that in Christ and by the Holy Spirit you apply all that Christ achieved for us in his life and death and resurrection. We thank you tonight that truly we can say that we know you and that we are yours, that we are in Christ. And we pray for uh, discernment as we explore together the, some of the scriptures as to what that means. Uh, so grant your blessing, bless our brothers and sisters in other classes in this building uh, this evening and as we come together for prayer later, uh, we ask again that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you would be in the midst of your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you picked up the outline, uh, I don't know what went through your mind. Uh, probably this is the shortest outline yet. Uh, this, is, uh, this is number 54. They've ranged. Some of them have been 15 pages long. This one, and I have to be honest, uh, today was uh, uh, torn apart by all kinds of things. And, uh, and Eve said at a certain point when I, when I was just at the very beginning of my preparation, uh, we need to go to print. Uh, so I've given you just the bare bones of uh, where I want to take you. And as, it, as the outline indicates this evening, uh, I'm going to spend most of this evening uh, looking at Romans 6, 1 to 14. Our, our topic is the order salutis, the application of redemption. Uh, just a reminder... Uh, there of uh, the trajectory, uh, beginning with union with Christ as, do you remember the word? The architectonic, have you used that word yet? The architectonic principle, like the, like the hub, uh, Monica, you're, you're into this tonight, the hub of a wheel and uh, all, the other, uh, all the other aspects are like spokes of that wheel. Uh, from effectual calling all the way through to glorification. Last week, uh, we were looking at the legal and forensic uh, aspect of justification. J just to keep that thought in your head, we're still tonight in the legal and forensic dimension, as we will be in a couple of weeks when we talk about adoption and sealing. All, all of these justification, definitive sanctification, and adoption or, or the sealing of the Spirit, um, all of those are, are, are ways of, of expressing a, a, a unified thought of God legally, forensically accepting us in Christ as righteous. Now, uh, definitive sanctification is a relatively new term, um, mid-20th century term, um, sometimes attributed 
to uh, John Murray, uh, professor at Westminster Seminary. Um, certainly in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, he wrote two um, essays that became very important uh, on the topic of definitive sanctification. They were published in a journal, the Calvin Theological Journal, and then has had a, a life and existence of its own. But, but these, these two chapters, these two essays really, have been, well, definitive. Uh, they have been uh, enormously influential uh, in helping us understand the nature of sanctification. Now, there's an aspect of sanctification uh, that involves... Um, our, uh, our effort, uh, we, 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 um, we put sin to death, we, we uh, display and encourage the growth of the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, there are certain things that we do. We, we think of it as progressive sanctification. But there's a sense in which the New Testament speaks of sanctification as something that has already happened. There's a sense in which it is yet to happen in the sense that it is a continual growing process from immaturity to maturity to perfection. But there's also a sense in which sanctification in the New Testament is a a thing that has already happened in a definitive or sometimes the word positional um, sense. Um, let's uh, look at some scriptures together uh, to see what, what is meant by that. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, f- four of them. And I'm going to focus on the fourth. Uh, the first is 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and verse 11. Uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians. He's given a list of Sins, uh, some of them, some of them, um, some of them notorious sins, public sins, uh, and then he says he kind of turns to the Corinthians and he says, "And such were some of you." Uh, among that sin is uh, the sin of um, homosexuality, for example, uh, and uh, evidently there were there were some who were members and, and Christians in the Church of uh, Corinth whose previous lifestyle had involved um, uh, homosexual uh, acts of of some kind. And, and, And such were some of you. Notice the tense. And such were some of you. The implication being that that lifestyle, whatever it was, has now has now been changed. They have adopted a new lifestyle that is consonant with their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, But then he adds, as Paul so often does, a kind of theological explanation, but you were washed. Think of the language of regeneration, the washing of regeneration in Titus. You were washed. Uh, Think of... uh, um, the language of uh, John 3 and Jesus and Nicodemus, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, uh, a, reference, uh, a reference perhaps uh, to the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. 
Uh, unless a man is born from above, uh, you cannot enter or cannot see the kingdom of God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, lots of interesting things about that. Not, not least the fact that sanctification comes before justification. You would expect sanctification to come after sanctification. Uh, you'd expect sanctification to come after justification. Um, but here it's put before, and notice the tense of the verb. You were sanctified as a, as a once and for all definitive, positional, legal, forensic act. You were regenerated, you were sanctified, you were justified. Uh, what does he mean by suggesting that there's an aspect of sanctification that has already taken place? That's a thing of the past. Well, as you ponder that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, the very opening verses of Corinthians. Uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now bear in mind that in the New Testament, in Greek, um, the, the word for sanctification and the word for holy is the same word. We don't have a, we don't have a verb form of holy in English. We, we don't talk about holify. Right, so we switch words. We go from holy to sanctify, suggesting that they might be two quite different things. But in the Greek, it's the same word. It's as though you are holy, you are holified. Right, so to those sanctified, considered holy. What, after all, is a saint? A saint is a holy one. Right? A saint isn't somebody who's gone, spent 300 years in purgatory and emerged on the other side because of, because of corroboration of two or three miracles uh, by, the, by the Catholic faithful. What, what is a saint? You, you are a saint. If you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are a saint. You are a holy one. Same word. Holy, sanctified, saint. These, are the, these all belong together. Now, Paul is saying to those sanctified. He's not saying to those in need of sanctification. Yes, yes, the Corinthians were in need of sanctification. There was a lot of trouble in in the church in Corinth. But there's a sense in which they are already sanctified. Called to be saints. Called to be Holy ones. Actually, you could equally translate it the holy called ones. What are we? We are those who have received a call, an effectual call, that has set us apart as holy, that has sanctified us, that has declared us to be saints. That's what we are. But what are you in Christ? I am a saint. It's okay. You you can say that. 
Right? The, the use of the word in, in the world around us makes us sort of reticent to say that, as though we're boasting about something, but we're not boasting about ourselves. We're boasting about our union with Christ. Christ declares us to be saints, sanctified. Uh, look at uh, the next verse, uh, 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Set apart as holy. S- same kind of idea. Uh, but it's Romans 6 uh, that I want us to think about. Romans 6, 1 through 14. So what I propose to do uh, now is, is just walk through uh, Romans 6, 1 through 14. Uh, there, is a, there is a question that begins Romans 6 because of something that he has said in Romans 5 and 4. And three, second half of three. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and the conclusion that he's going to reach is, verse three, do you not know? Right? And when you, when you see that, you want to ask yourself, well, actually, do I know? Because that's, that's the problem. Do I know this? This is something that you should know. Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then if you drop down to verse 11, this is the conclusion. Drop down to verse 11. So you must consider yourself... Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? There's a sense in which we are sanctified. We are set apart in Christ. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's what we are. It's definitive sanctification. It's positional sanctification. The first thing that we have to get straight is, who are you? Your identity. Who are you? Now, it may, uh, it may come as a bit of a surprise. I think it probably does to most of us. That when Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means... He, he answers the question by saying, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ? He goes to baptism. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that that would be our default. You know, we read this passage and we want, to sort of, uh, we want to sort of back away from baptism here because is Paul suggesting that everybody who is baptized is a Christian, that somehow there's some, some sort of baptismal regeneration going on here? That you uh, sprinkle some water or, or, or a lot of water, in your case, Baptist. <laughs> um, 
that you apply water and, and, and all of a sudden you are set apart in, in Christ. That, that, something, that, that the waters of baptism themselves regenerate. Now Paul isn't saying any such thing. But what he is saying, and remember that he's writing to, he's writing to believers, most of whom would have been baptized as adults... Because this is, this is on, the, on the cusp of, of the expansion of the gospel in Rome. What does baptism point to? It is a sign and seal of what? It is a sign and seal of everything that is true about the gospel. What does baptism signify? It signifies the gospel. That in Christ... Our sins are forgiven. It's not baptism that forgives. Baptism is a sign and seal to those who believe that, that everything in the gospel, everything in Christ is true. I am baptized. You know, it was, uh, it was Luther's uh, default. Uh, when, uh, when, when, and Luther was always seeing s- s- Satan somewhere, and when, when, when he thought he was seeing Satan, he would say, Baptismus sum, I am baptized. This, this for Paul, Romans 6, 1 through 14 for Paul, is of paramount significance and importance for living the Christian life. And the first thing that we need to understand is that in Christ we are dead to sin. We are dead to sin. Shall we continue in sin? No, because you are dead to it. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, this is, the way, this is the way that we are to think about ourselves as Christians. We are those who have died to sin and come to life in Christ. That's what we are. That's our identity. Now what has, uh, what has driven Paul to speak about this and what's driven him to speak about this is what he has said back in Romans 5 and verse 11 more than that uh, more, more than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation we've received these extraordinary blessings of the gospel and Paul, Paul could have gone quite easily from Romans 5.11 to Romans 8.1 he, he could have missed out the second half of Romans 5, 6, and 7. It would have made perfect sense for Paul to go from Romans 5, 11 right into Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But if that experience of everything that is true in justification, of everything that is true in the gospel, if that, if that experience is going to be sustained, it, it has to have deep foundations. So in verses 12 through 21 of the second half of Romans 5, Paul begins to explore what those foundations are. 
And he explores it by, by saying that we are no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. We were in Adam, we were the children of Adam, we thought like Adam, we did like Adam, but now we are in, we are in the last Adam. We're in Christ, we're in the new man, we are a new creation. We are no longer Adamic. We are those who are set apart in Christ. We are those who are sanctified in Christ. We are the holy ones. We are saints. And it has brought about in uh, the end of chapter 5 the question, what is the function of the law? Uh, And Paul has gone on to explain that part of the function of the law was to expose sin and indeed indeed expose it in such a way uh, that where, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Now with that kind of logic... Uh, The implication is that I can go on sinning to my heart's content. Let's go on sinning that grace may more and more and more abound then. And Paul responds. He responds first of all uh, in chapter 6 and verse 2. He responds kind of emotionally. And and, uh, he responds, I think, first of all in a a kind of um, gut reaction. Uh, those of you who read the King James Version or can remember the King James Version, uh, God forbid. It's not a, an accurate rendition of the Greek, but, but uh, God forbid. Uh, may it never be. Meganoito. It's a gut reaction. C- can I continue in sin as a Christian? And, and unless... You know, this is a good test. I mean, what's, what's the instinct in your heart? What's the instinct in your soul to that question? I don't think about it for a second. If you think about it, if you begin to ponder it, you've missed the point. It ought to be instinctive. It's a kind of emotional outburst. Absolutely not. You cannot. I think the gospel brings about that kind of instinctive reaction. But then, because this is Paul, uh, he, he, wants, he wants more than instinct. He, he wants explanation. So he gives a, do, a doctrinal argument. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are, as Christians, we are, and, and let, me, let me re-translate it a little, we are the kind of people who died to sin. That's what we are. If you want to describe Christians, they, they belong to a, a group, a class, of those, of those who have died to sin. Now, let's, uh, let's explore that for a second. What does that mean? Uh, do you not know uh, that all of us, uh, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
Now he's not speaking here, let me say a few negatives here. He's not speaking of something that has happened only to a select group of Christians, like super Christians. You know, this is, there are ordinary Christians and then there are those of whom it can be said they have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus and have died to sin. This is true of every Christian. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a saint, this is true of you. You have died to sin. He's not saying here that we need to die for sin. That you need, let me put it in a different way. He's not saying here that this is something that you need to do. This is something that is true of you without your doing anything. If you read this passage and you go out and you say, I'm going to try to die to sin this week, you've missed the point. Uh, J.B. Phillips, in his translation, uh, translates this, uh, arguable whether it's a translation or, or, or something else, but, but he argue, he, I mean, sometimes J.B. Phillips can be absolutely brilliant, and, and here he's not so brilliant. Um, anyone who has died can safely be said to be immune to sin. Well, if that's true, th- that's, that's just disaster. Now, we're not immune to sin. Spurgeon, I think I might have said this before, Spurgeon on a platform, I think it was Paddington Station, he was going somewhere. And uh, this, this uh, person comes up to him, kind of groupy, wanting to impress him, said to Spurgeon uh, that uh, he was perfect. He had received something or other, some experience, and he was now in a state of perfection. So Spurgeon, who was a big man, uh, trod on his toe. Uh, and the man uttered something that was evidence he was not perfect. <laughs> and uh, so the story goes, Spurgeon says, I knew you weren't perfect. <laughs> Anyone who has died to sin can be said to be immune to sin. No, that's not what it's saying. So, so what is it saying? Well, there are two clues here. Clue number one is what Paul has been saying in the previous chapter. Clue number one is the Adam-Christ parallel. You once were in Adam, but now you are in Jesus Christ. Something so radical has happened that that, that being dead to sin is, I'm no longer in Adam, I am in Christ. Sin reigned as a king. That's the language Paul uses in the latter half of Romans 5. Now you live in the kingdom where grace reigns. The moment you became a Christian, you were transferred into a different kingdom. You came under the subjection of a different rule and a different ruler. Christ has broken the bonds of that ruler. 
made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. And we've been brought into an entirely new kingdom. Now, clue number two, actually, it's the way he speaks here in verse 2, in the singular. We have died to sin. Not, Not that we've died to sins, in the plural, but we have died to sin as a, as, a, as a principle. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, maybe you would like to just glance back at Romans 5.21. Sin reigned in death. Sin as a, as a king. Sin, sin as, a, as, a, as a ruler. Look at uh, chapter 6 and verse Uh, Six, we know that our old self or old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sin was once like a slave master. And it's no longer a slave master. Uh, Look at verse uh, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Sin as a, kind of, as a kind of general, as a kind of ruler over you. That, that rule, that dominance of sin over your life as the all-encompassing thing in your life, that, that's been broken. But he's not saying, he's not suggesting that we have been removed from sin's presence But we have been removed from sin's dominance, from sin's rule over our lives as a master. We're in the realm of grace now. Now, um, having having explored that a little in verses 1 through 4, Paul then expounds it in verses 5 through 10 reaching his conclusion in verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God, alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then he makes, he makes a few applications then in verses 12, 13, and 14. So he gives a kind of proposition in verses 1 to 4. He expounds it in 5 through 10. He reaches a conclusion in verse 11, and then he makes application in verses 12, 13, and 14. Now, uh, let me say again, and, I, and I'm, I'm, this, isn't, this isn't me, this is, this is the general consensus here, that, that the understanding of this passage is absolutely important. Uh, there are those who say that, that your understanding of the Christian life is shaped entirely by your understanding or misunderstanding of Romans 6, 1 through 14. So listen to Paul as he, as he expounds this a little further in verses 5 through 10 when he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about union with Christ. Remember the architectonic principle of the order salutis? Union with Christ. We are in union with him. What does, what does being in union with Christ mean? What is the shape of it? 
Well, we are in union with him in every aspect of his life, death and resurrection. So that when he died, we died in him. When he rose, we rose in him. So Paul uh, now, as it were, puts this under a microscope. He begins to sort of look at it in detail. Verse 6, we know that our old self, and that's, that's a little PC, old man would be a, would be a more accurate, look, look, at the, look at the little footnote at the bottom, number 4, if you're using the ESV, uh, old man. Bible translators are not immune to PC stuff. We, we know that our old self, our, the old man, the man in Adam, was crucified. What does crucified mean? It means dead. Right? It's dead. It's lifeless. It's not that the old man needs to be crucified. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the old man is dead. The old man is crucified. We, we know, there's the question, do we? Do we listen to Paul? He's a teacher. And he's saying we know, meaning you should know, you ought to know, you, you've got to understand this, that in Christ you are no longer what you once were. You are no longer a man in Adam. You are a man in Christ. A woman in Christ. Let's see what the gospel has done for us, Paul is saying. And he's looking at it through the microscope. You get a sense that he's profoundly concerned about this. And one of the fundamental things about being a Christian is that we are in union, not with Adam, but we are in union with Christ, in union with his death and in union with his resurrection. We are among that class of people who have died and come to life again. Remember when Paul writes to the Ephesians, what does he say? We sit in where? Heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, you're sitting here. You're in, you're in Jackson Hall. Right, you're in, what's, what's the zip code, George? 29201. We have a zip code, it's 29201. That's where we are. If you have a GPS, if your phone is on, hope it's on silent, but if your phone is on, somebody, find friends, they can, they can locate you to within a few feet. Uh, my sister loves to do this. She's in Wales. I'll, I'll go to Starbucks sometimes in the morning and I'll get a text message at, at, at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. And it's from my sister in Wales, right, four and a half thousand miles away. And she'll say, I see you're having coffee. <laughs> my son turned that off. Yeah. That's, that's our zip code. It can locate you. But you're also in heavenly places. You also belong to another realm. Look at verse 6 again. We know that our old self was crucified with him. There was a time when I was in Adam, but now I'm in Christ and in the, in the, in the kingdom of, of, of grace. We no longer belong to that old family and that old humanity. We are in a 
we are in a new family now. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, well, in English we introduce a verb, he is a new creation. But actually there's no verb in the, in the original Greek. It's, 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 Paul can't, can't wait to get it out. If any man be in Christ, new creation. Not new creature, which was the King James Version. That, that's kind of, kind of scary. But we're not new creatures. We are part of the new creation. That the body of sin, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? We died so that that body of sin would come to nothing. Now, why does he use the expression body of sin? Well, where does sin manifest itself? In, in the body. With our eyes, with our ears, with our hands, with our feet. Sins have, have hands and feet. And, and there is a sense... Yes, not just spiritually, not just secretly somewhere deep down inside, but in your bodies. As as tangible and crass as your bodies, you are no longer what you were. You belong to a new order. Your hands and feet and eyes. And oh... Christian, get this in the realm of of sexual ethics. In your bodies. Paul talks about using your bodies as instruments of righteousness. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see him saying it over and over? He's been set free from sin. We've we've died. We've died to our old Adamic self and we've come to life in union and communion with Jesus Christ. Now there are a million questions about the influence of sin on our lives. And and does that mean that Christians are are not influenced by sin? Does that mean that Christians can't fall into sin, can't fall into the habit of sin? Yes, of course. That's what Romans 7 is going to be about. But what you need to realize, Paul is saying, that when you give your bodies, your eyes, and your ears, and your hands, and your feet, and for the Corinthians... Visiting brothels, no less. Yes, for the Corinthians. You take Christ with you, is Paul's argument. That's, that's how wrong it is. C- can we sin in order that grace may abound? Absolutely not, because I serve Jesus now. And I serve him in the totality of my new redeemed humanity. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Jesus died, but he came to life. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, verse 9, will never die again. 
Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, here's the conclusion, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is something definitive. This is definitive sanctification. This is positional sanctification. It's something that's true of us right now. That we are, that, that we are those who have been set apart. Now in verses 12, uh, 13, and uh, 14, he makes, uh, he makes some... Uh, application, if you like. He makes, he makes some, some consequences that follow. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Because when sin comes knocking on the door, you don't have to obey it. That's what he's saying. You know, there was a time when sin said, and you just, you said, sin said jump, and you said, how far? You know, what did Luther do when, when, when Satan knocked on the door and said, is, is Martin Luther here? And he said, no, Martin Luther isn't here anymore. A man in Christ lives here now. Say no to sin. Because it's not your master anymore. Now, you can, you can distort the truth of your profession of faith and make it and so live as though it were your master. But you're denying everything that is true of the gospel when you do that. Sin shall not be your master. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. There's the definitive. Right? There's the positional. There's the judicial aspect. What are you in Christ? A new creation. A saint. A holy one. One who has been declared to be as righteous as Jesus is righteous. That's what justification means. I've been declared in Christ to be a law keeper and a covenant keeper. Now live like that. Go in the strength of that. So that when law comes, it's not coming to you as a law that says do this and live. It's coming to you as a law that says live and do this. Because it's gratitude. It's thanksgiving. It's the only way that I can live. I can no longer do what I once did because I am married to another now. 
and committed to another now. So definitive, positional, judicial sanctification. Right? There are two aspects of sanctification. There's a progressive aspect, mortification, vivification, we'll talk about it later. But there's also this legal, forensic side of which Paul uh, expounds in Romans 6, 1 through 14. Well, next week uh, we have the B.B. Warfield uh, lectures uh, from Erskine Theological Seminary here at Columbia campus and uh, George Robertson from uh, First Presbyterian in, in Augusta. Augusta will be here next week and talking about the Lord's Supper. Two weeks from now, we'll, we'll continue the same theme of things that are true judicially and positionally when we take up the issue of adoption, that we are adopted sons in the family uh, of God. Well, we'll segue in a few minutes to prayer, but uh, as we're joined by others from other classes, um, let's, uh, let's close this uh, section in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Our hearts are full as we, as we think about all that Christ has really done for us. As the Holy Spirit has brought us now into, into the experience of that union with Christ. As, as the finished work of Christ and all that he has achieved has been, has been applied to us. And we've been called and we've been regenerated. And you've, you've enabled us to believe and to repent. And you've justified us, declared us to be righteous. And we thank you too for this truth that we have died to sin and we've been raised to new life in Christ. That's what we are. That is our identity. Help us to reckon on it. Help us to remind ourselves of it every morning when we get up and before we get up. I am a man in Christ. I am a woman in Christ. That is who I am. That is my identity. And bless this to us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.